So for the past couple of months, we have been doing what perhaps a lot of you have been doing around your house or out in the garage. We've been sorting through boxes, uh, things that we've had for a number of years and just never seemed to get around to looking in those boxes or dealing with what was in those boxes. And in a couple of those boxes, my wife found my CDs, my compact discs of all the music I used to listen to. And so she brought them into the house and she said, I would like you to sort through these and let's get rid of some of them. But as I began to sort through them, I I, I really wanted to go and find a CD player because I was like, gosh, I have such great music that I haven't listened to in so long that I really just want to keep all of it. And I was reminded of a conversation I had with my mom a couple of months ago when she asked me this question, when are you going to get your record albums out of your old bedroom? And I said to my mom, I, I think they're pretty good where they are. You've been storing them for at least 35 years. Let's just, let's just keep doing that. But some of you are perhaps like me. You've accumulated a lot of old music. And so as I was going through my CDs, I came across the band The Talking Heads. And some of you may remember uh, The Talking Heads. David Byrne uh, was their lead singer as a great band of the 80s. And, and they had this song called The Road to Nowhere. And it was a kind of an upbeat, peppy song, but it was really kind of a doomsday sort of a message. The chorus went something like this. We're on the road to nowhere. Come on inside. Taking a ride to nowhere, we'll take that ride. Now, I know that was deep. We're on a ride to nowhere. Come on inside. We'll take that ride to nowhere. We'll join up for that. And if you remember the video, and many of you probably don't remember this video, but it was a typical video of the 80s. It was just kind of weird. And David Byrne was like running along in the background of the video. And and, and, and for such a peppy tune, it really was kind of a sad and sorrowful song. Because who of us, which of us, wants to be on a road to nowhere? And so what I want us to talk about for the next nine weeks is thinking about the road to somewhere. Thinking about finding our way with Jesus. Because what I have discovered over time and in my own life is that I travel best when I am with Jesus. Now I get distracted and I lose my way at times. But Jesus just keeps bringing me back, helping me refocus. And so what I want for us to talk about these next several weeks is what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, defines a disciple like this. And this is not, remember, you can have disciples outside of the Christian faith. But he says, this is what a disciple is. A disciple is simply someone who has decided to be with another person under appropriate conditions in order to become capable of doing what that person does or become what that person is. They have decided to be with someone in order to become capable of doing or to be about what that other person with other, how that other person lives their life. So what we want to talk about are three different themes in this series on discipleship. 
We want to talk about following Jesus. We want to talk about becoming like Jesus. And we want to talk about acting like Jesus, behaving like Jesus. So for the first three weeks, we're going to talk about following. Our text for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 4. And if you go back and look at at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, this is right after Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist and then has been led out into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. And now we find Jesus on the move. He's moving up north out of Nazareth to Capernaum. So we're in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 22. And this is how Matthew describes the story. It says, When Jesus had heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, and this is the the Sea of Galilee, and the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So Jesus leaves Nazareth, and he makes his way up to Capernaum. We have a map here to kind of show you what that looks like. And so Jesus is basically up in the area of Galilee. And Capernaum is in the northernmost part of the kingdom of Israel, where the 12 tribes are. That's what Zebulun and, and Naphtali are all about. So it, it, it's, it's a strange place to set up for a strategic mission. One would ex- expect Jesus to go to Jerusalem more than likely, or perhaps maybe even Bethlehem, but certainly not Capernaum. Certainly not the land to the north. And we know that people didn't fully understand this because as we look in the Gospel of John at chapter 7, verses 40 to 42, as the people are trying to figure out who Jesus is, we read this. John 7, verse 40. On hearing his words, Jesus' words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? How can the Messiah come from the north, that far north? Because Capernaum wasn't just geographically a long way from Jerusalem. Religiously, it was viewed in the same way. The people who lived up north were not nearly as faithful as the people who lived in Jerusalem. Because Galilee butted right up against the pagan nations, 
So you had Gentiles and Jews living together. Galilee was filled with religious zealots. That's where they went to get away and prepare to try and overthrow the Roman Empire. Galilee is isolated. It's the last place that we would expect Jesus to set up camp. But he literally moves to Capernaum. And it's to fulfill scripture. We read a part of that earlier in our text today, but I want to read to you the fullness of that text. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. And Isaiah is looking to the end of the the Babylonian captivity. He's looking to when the nation of Israel will experience some freedom. And it's interesting the lands that he mentions. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. This is precisely where Jesus is. And then verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On these living in the land of a deep darkness, a light has dawned. Matthew is saying to us, this light that the people thought, which was just going to be the freedom for Israel, it is bigger than that. It is the freedom that comes in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus is fulfilling the words of Isaiah chapter 9 when he moves north, when he goes up to Capernaum, when he sets out on his strategic mission in a place where we would have never thought of. It's interesting to me how Jesus oftentimes identifies himself with the outsiders, with those on the margins. We see this even in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. When Matthew talks about in that genealogy where we would expect only men to appear, he has Tamar, he has Rahab, he has Ruth. He has these different women that are mentioned within the genealogy of Jesus, helping us to see that Jesus identifies those with whom we would not expect him to, particularly Rahab and Ruth, who were complete outsiders. Jesus identifies with those on the margins. Matthew continues that in Matthew chapter 2, when we see the wise men, the magi, coming to visit Jesus. Again, the outsiders being brought close to Jesus. And now Jesus starts his ministry amidst the Gentiles, going and sharing the good news of Jesus. And speaking of outsiders, look at who he calls to follow him in the very beginning. Fishermen, which we'll say something about in just a minute. The message of Jesus is simple. Repent. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Because in Jesus Christ, we need to understand that he is the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, as we've talked about, is not just future tense. It is present tense because Christ has arrived. He brings the kingdom. He calls for repentance. And sometimes I think repentance gets misconstrued and we think about it in fiery preaching and people being yelled at and being told to repent. But repent is simply turning away from the direction that you were going in. It's letting go. And as Jesus speaks that and he says to the disciples, to James and to Peter and Andrew and then James and John, he's saying, I'm giving you the power to follow me. Follow me. It's one of the steps of being a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus gives us the power and the ability to do that. 
follow me is the language of a rabbi. The rabbis would would be out and they would be amongst their students. And, and, and we've talked about this in the days of Jesus. It was the best of the best who the rabbis would then choose. The rabbis would go out on a recruiting trip and they would choose the best disciples. They would choose the ones that were the most astute, the ones that showed the most promise. Well, guess what about Peter and Andrew and James and John? Had they been amongst the best? Had they been amongst the brightest? They would have already been following a rabbi. But they were out fishing, which meant that they had not made the cut. They were not a part of the inside crowd. But look at what Jesus does. He calls them and he says to them, I want you to follow me. I want you to give your life to me. I am so encouraged by this, by the way in which Jesus looks for those who not everybody is looking for. They weren't looking to become students, but Jesus nonetheless said, hey, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow in my ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes that calling, and I think it applies for many of us. This is verse 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. The Apostle Paul gets exactly what Jesus was doing. The Apostle Paul says, think about who you were when you were chosen. Think about who you were when Jesus said, follow me. You might not have been the best of the best. No one may have even noticed you. But Jesus comes into your life and speaks this word. And he says, follow me. You think about those disciples. You think about that crowd that Jesus, the the 12 that Jesus chose originally. You have Peter, who's Mr. Hothead, who goes off in all sorts of directions. You have his younger brother, Andrew, who we hardly ever hear from because Peter's probably usually speaking for him. You have John, who's ready to call down fire from heaven to wipe out the people who are being rude to the followers of Jesus. You have Thomas, who doubts the resurrection of Jesus. You have Matthew, who is a tax collector. You have Simon, who is a zealot, who is a religious fanatic. And you have Judas. And these are the 12 that Jesus says, follow me. Come and be one of my apostles. That's why I'm pretty sure in John chapter 17, Jesus prays that the disciples will be one. Because they are a diverse group of people. But that should be encouraging to us because it should, it should tell us that even amidst our diversity, the different ways in which we view the world, the different ways in which we view politics, the different ways in which we view religion and how it should interact in the world, Jesus says, I'm praying that you will be one. And his assortment of disciples shows that. It's an incredibly diverse group of people. And Jesus' prayer for them is that they will be one and they will be unified. The message of Jesus is not complicated. Unfortunately, at times, I think the church, I think pastors like myself, 
have made the message complicated. But if you look at that passage in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, he doesn't even preach hardly anything. He has one sentence, repeat, repent for the kingdom of God has drawn near. We don't get his full sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, till Matthew chapter 5. He's already called several disciples before he really launches in to a major sermon. He keeps the message simple. And he says, come and follow me. But that calling to follow Jesus, to following Jesus, can be costly. It is not always easy. The disciples have to give up something. They have to leave their nets. Peter and Andrew, James and John, James and John have to leave their father. So I want to, I want to end. Well, I'm not quite ready to end yet, but as we wrap things up, I'm going to ask two questions. The first question is this, who or what are you following? Who or what are you following? And, and I'm not talking about on Twitter. If you do the, do the Twitter thing and, and who you're following and who's following you, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm asking this question in the sense of saying, when you think about your day, what do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your time reading? What do you spend your time perhaps worrying about? Who or what are you following? What gets your attention? And how much of your attention does it get? My daughter and I are having this conversation the other night. Um, and, and actually, I'm not sure I've told the church yet, but Morgan was hired as the high school director at Solana Beach Presbyterian Church, which we're totally excited about. And I'm so glad that she's back in San Diego and has a job. And anyway, she and I were talking, and this is the great thing when, you're, when your child is a theology major, we're talking about idolatry. And I'm guessing that not everyone in their household sits around and talks about idolatry. But she made this interesting statement. It may have been actually a question, but it was, it was along the lines of saying, do you think that COVID has become idolatrous in our society. And we have to remember that, that idolatry isn't just like putting up an idol in our backyard or a false god or something like that. But what she was getting at and, and, and what she was asking was saying, has COVID become so much of our lives that we spend more time talking about COVID, worrying about COVID, thinking about COVID than we do about our relationship with Jesus Christ? I said, I think that's a really good question. I think that's a really good point. Because COVID has, in a sense, overwhelmed many of us. It's all we can think about. It occupies our time. It distracts us. I'm not going to ask you to think about this past week. How much time did you spend thinking about COVID? How much time did you spend with Jesus? Well, I guess I did ask that question. But you can just try and answer that yourself. But it's not just COVID. It's politics. Look at the political world we're in right now. The posturing, the language the fighting, the back and forth, the lack of trust. And so many people on both sides of the equation are very amped up about our political situation. They're spending a ton of time on that issue when perhaps they need to be spending more time with Jesus. Has our politics become idolatrous, distracting us, taking up more time than it should? So who or what are you following? That's the first question. The second question that I want to drill down a little bit deeper. And I want you to think about Peter and Andrew and James and John. They were fishermen. 
And Jesus comes along and says, follow me. Drop your nets. Drop your livelihood. Drop your family. And follow after me. So I want you to hold on that image and I want to ask you this question. What nets or net are you holding on to? What has Jesus been saying to you? You're trusting in that net too much. You need to let go. What in your life, what in your world, perhaps that you've been focusing on too much, are you clinging to more than Jesus? Because Jesus says to those disciples, drop your nets and come and follow me. And that's the path to discipleship. And I want to make it clear here that Jesus doesn't say to those disciples, change your life and then come follow me. He says, follow me and let me change your life. And I think that's a very important thing for us to learn. We, we don't get everything all figured out and sorted out and say, okay, now we'll follow Jesus. Jesus says, no. He says, follow me and then let me change your life. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be on the road to nowhere. I want to be on the road to somewhere. I want to be traveling the road with Jesus. I want to be making my way with Jesus. And in order to do that, it means that I have to think about my own life. I have to consider who am I following? And do I need to let go of something? Is there a net that Jesus is saying to me, let go and follow me? My prayer, my hope is that we'll drop our nets and we'll follow after Jesus so that we might become the disciples and the people that he longs for us to be. Pray with me, please. Oh God, thanks for this day. Thank you um, that we have the privilege and the honor to just be able to listen to your word. Lord, we know there are many believers throughout this world that don't have that freedom. That Lord, gather for worship in places uh, where they're fearful that they might be uncovered or might be revealed. So God, we have a great freedom to be able to worship you. Lord, help us on this path of discipleship. Help us to show us the way so that we can be with you so that we might become the men and women you've created us to be. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name.